Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome, everyone, back to Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And as actually promised, we are actually going to be talking about the trade war between the United States and China right now. What's going on? Why might it be happening? What might be the impacts? And how's everything going differently versus the conventional narratives that we're hearing? Because that's what we do. One very brief announcement but very exciting one before we get going. So don't skip this one. Ready? Xander and I are going to, on November 3rd, be giving talks at Harvard University with the Ministry of Ideas educational podcast conference that's going to be there. We're going to be joining big names such as Dan Carlin of Hardcore History and Patrick Wyman of Tides of History along with other people who are probably also big names, but we probably don't listen to all of their podcasts, but you might. So go check out Ministry of Ideas. It's Saturday, November 3rd. If you're in the Boston area, you should be there. It's 25 bucks, and we will have a link to the tickets in the show notes. So uh, yeah, come on by, bring your copy of Wedged, find us, give us a high five, you know what to do. Hooray, it'll be fun. Yeah. So should we dig into the trade war then? Yeah, man. All right. Well, there's this whole trade war thing that's been going on. And what? what's going on? What's the beef, right? What's the what's beef? The beef? <laughs> Where's the beef? Actually, the beef is probably also tariffed. So, you know, a, a, relative, a relevant expression. Yeah, there we go. Now, trade wars are inherently economic issues. There are also political issues, both domestically and internationally. So something that we're going to try to sort out on this show is what's political, like domestic political, about the trade war, and what might actually be working in U.S. national interest in some way or another. They both coexist at the same time. Yeah, when you say some way or another, you're implying, perhaps foreshadowing, that there's more to the trade war than just the U.S. economy. Isn't that a surprising thing or not really? Well, if you've listened to the previous episode, it's probably not so surprising. Like if you're like, you know, if you're on top of your uh, reconsider schedule. So if you have not listened to it yet, you should definitely go back to our previous episode on China's economy because it is very, very relevant to this episode and we're not going to repeat it all. Indeed. Now, for a long time, the U.S. has had a fairly large and growing trade deficit with China. And a trade deficit just means the U.S. buys more stuff from China than it exports to China. So more imports than exports. And as a result, some stuff that was formerly made in the U.S. 
is now made much less in the U.S. It's made in other countries, such as China. And this is, is the case for a number of products. One of the more notable ones is steel, for example. Yeah, I actually grew up in eastern rural Pennsylvania, but very near to Bethlehem. And my middle school was in Bethlehem, long story. But I remember Bethlehem like as it was reeling from the loss of steel. Now, for those of you who are too young to know, Bethlehem used to be the steel capital of the world. It was replaced first by Pittsburgh, but, you know, Bethlehem was still a pretty big deal. Lots of iron and coal mining in Pennsylvania, which allowed, you know, which meant that the the that Pennsylvania had the raw materials necessary to produce a lot of steel. And I remember playing lacrosse with these like dead rusting towers in the background of the field that were the old like Bethlehem steel foundry. And the town was just, it was, I mean, it was the essence of the rust belt. It was very depressed from having lost the core economic machine that caused it to grow in the first place. And there's a lot of resentment in the area about the loss of the steel industry, right? This was people's livelihoods. So you know, we're going to be talking about phenomena that are very abstract economically. But one thing we need to keep in mind as we talk about this and how it affects the United States political landscape, perhaps elections, is that, you know, there are lots of real people who are either incredibly directly or, or you know, very deeply but indirectly touched by industries that move, right? That, that when, you know, when an industry leaves an area that's been there for a hundred years, people's lives are very much affected and, and they have reactions to it. Indeed. And this is one of the biggest political issues that comes about with tariffs and trade generally. The idea that as a result of a number of factors, other countries can produce products for cheaper. It could be cheaper labor. It could be easier access to certain types of resources. It could be technology that doesn't exist in other countries. But for some reason or another, some country or some countries have a comparative advantage in producing something. And that often results in the loss of an industry elsewhere where maybe some other country used to have a comparative advantage, but they don't anymore. So tariffs then politically are often seen as a way to appeal to a base that has perhaps lost or is in the process of losing an industry which maybe a large portion of the country or a certain region has benefited from or depended on for a long time. And if you're in your 50s and you've worked in this industry for your whole life and you're not close to retiring, that's that's a pretty hard thing because then you're faced with a situation where you need to either develop a lot of new skills very quickly or potentially move to a new town or a new state, which is not something that some people have resources for. And basically, it just makes life really hard for some folks. Yeah, I think, you know, I like bringing up the example of Bethlehem because it shows the lopsided nature of the movement of international trade, you know, by industries such as steel moving overseas, steel is actually much cheaper. And so what that means is that, you know, the United States real estate industry and other construction and, you know, other stuff that uses steel, like the car industry has access to inputs that are much less expensive 
So they're actually able to be more productive, right? So there's a there's an economic benefit to that steel moving overseas for for many industries. And also many things, you know, when when many industries move overseas to areas where the production cost is lower, it means that the average US consumer is able to get a lot of goods for cheaper. And, you know, that's a positive thing for the average pocketbook. But the benefits are very lopsided. You know, those folks in Bethlehem, those steelworkers who lost their jobs and all the people that, you know, sold to them and depended on them, they get a net, they tend to get a net economic loss. So some people get it a lot worse, whereas other people get it a little bit better in ways that they can't define or understand, right? Like you and I don't go to the store and go like, oh, this thing is cheaper. Like, thank goodness the steel industry moved overseas. So we're not cognizant of it in a very, in a direct way, right? All of our savings are are subtle and, and we don't have a good sense of what it otherwise would have cost. Uh, so, you know, we don't get to say thank you for moving this industry overseas. Whereas the people that lost their job, they get to, you know, curse the Curse the foreigners if if you're of one inclination or if you're of another inclination, curse international capitalism as a whole or curse corporations for moving stuff overseas for profit. Whoever is your your convenient bad guy, it's much easier to kind of point a finger and be upset. So I think this is actually a good point to, or a good time to just kind of like focus on these two different narratives that exist because oftentimes free trade, globalism... And the tariffs and protectionism that often comes about as a, as a response to it, they're, they're presented as black and white issues. Either free trade is good, it is a thing that's good, it benefits countries, or globalism is bad, people lose their jobs, and you know we're just shipping jobs overseas. And the, the fact of the matter is those are both kind of happening at the same time. Clearly, they're matters of degree because... Eric, like you said, if you if you save ten percent of maybe your weekly savings because you can get stuff for a lot cheaper at Walmart, you might not notice that as much as if, clearly if you lose your job and you know puts serious stress on your life. So that's how the political balance begins to play into the whole trade and globalism issue. Here's another interesting thing that I just realized. So as as I was you know, sort of pointing out that you can pick your favorite villain. Is it the foreigner? Like, is it China or is it the evil corporations? We have to ask ourselves at this moment, is free trade versus protectionism a left-right issue? Mm. I remember in 2012, you know, when Romney was running against Obama, he was getting flack from the Democrats' electoral propaganda machine for being for being someone who over, you know, who outsourced jobs, who took jobs, you know, when he worked with Bain Capital, he would like take good jobs from America and ship them overseas, evil capitalism. And it seemed when Romney was running that the Republicans were the, the party of globalism and free trade and the Democrats were the party of, you know, keep, keep jobs in America and protect the worker. And now it seems to have flipped with Trump. Trump is the one that's saying we need to protect the American worker and put up tariffs and get out of trade deals that are bad and, you know, and also stop, you know, certain immigration from coming, you know, illegal immigration from coming in to work here. 
And the Democrats are the ones saying, no, trade is good. Multilateral deals are good. Let's be part of it. And I wonder how many people have feel like that their opinion has flipped on this and how many people sort of haven't noticed that their parties up and switched over a four year period. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a pretty good example of how labels like left, right are useful in a sense in that they let people self-identify and, and very briefly communicate a lot of information about them. But at the same time, they're dynamic because what is left and what is right can change over times as the composition of political parties changes with the times. And we did an episode a while back on how political parties form and all that. But, you know, every 50 years or so, what is a Republican and what is a Democrat changes. And it's been 40 years, I get. Well, let's see. The last real political shift was sort of like in the 60s, right? Yeah. So it's it's been a while. And these things happen every, you know, several decades. So something to think about. You know, we've been we've been talking a lot about the changes of the 90s and the 2000s as context for you know, how the United States is reacting to trade with China right now. But we also need to put the international trade changes from China's rise and China's growth into a longer context and larger context in the United States or for the United States for us to understand it. Right. So so, you know, we talk about certain industries such as steel moving to China. But the thing is, this change in labor makeup is something that has happened repeatedly and constantly throughout the history of the United States, right? In the 90s, the US lost a lot of steel jobs and those people had to find new work if they were going to make anything close to the same amount of money. But this change that, you know, an, an old industry has gone away for people has obviously happened during the first and second industrial revolutions. It happened during the automation revolution of the 60s and 70s. If you think about the United States in its mid-1800s period, when it was already becoming a major powerhouse, you know, it was a, it was a textiles country. If you look at the first, you know, if you walk around New England and Massachusetts and you look at these old mills or you go to the museums there, the United States was producing textiles. It was producing cotton sheets and clothes, you know, and obviously also grew the inputs to that, right? Such as cotton from a, you know, slave-driven economy in the South. And that industry sense has been completely exported. It has left. And, you know, a common pattern of the United States is that it will innovate some new industry of some sort. And then over time, as the industry becomes more commoditized and easy to copy, the industry is consolidated and either exported or automated. And then the United States moves on to something new. And so what tends to happen is that when these industries start moving or being automated, it can be very painful for workers in that sector of the economy. But then it also, you know, has been the engine of growth in the United States. So, you know, for example, the United States having exported its textile manufacturing freed up labor to go do other things. And if we had somehow stopped that from being, you know, that industry from being exported, we would and and we're still a, a textile Our producer economy might look more like that of Mexico or Pakistan, who are major textile producers rather than the way it looks today. So this is just some background on issues related to free trade. Tangentially, we're actually not tangentially related, but is the issue of currency and currency manipulation, right? Because one of the 
prevailing narratives right now in the U.S. is that China is somehow a currency manipulator. Actually, it's maybe less prevailing now than it was a couple of years ago, and we'll get into that. But of course, then the question is, what is a currency manipulator? Like, what, what does that even mean? Now, the U.S. Treasury Department classifies currency manipulation as basically, or a currency manipulator as a country that's buying lots of foreign reserves to depress its own currency, which lets it increase the, its amount of exports, right? Because if its currency goes down, then it's easier to buy things in that currency because it's cheaper. And this is often seen as an unfair advantage because then they get to undercut different countries' exports. Right. So that that sets up this debate about you know this trade war with China in a way that is a little bit different from what we just described. Because earlier we were talking about what's called comparative advantage, like it's just cheaper to make this somewhere else. So it's sort of just the natural movement of things. But if one believes that a country such as China is using unfair trade practices to, you know, in order to sort of suck a perfectly healthy industry out of another country and give itself an economic advantage, then that would change both the, you know, the fairness, you know, the question of is it fair to put tariffs up against this country, but also change the question about whether it's going to be effective. Because if you believe all this, you'll make an argument that, look, the industries that went overseas, they're perfectly viable in the United States in a truly free trade environment, but it's not a free trade environment because China is cheating in some way. And we need to adjust for that in order to allow the free market to bring those industries back. And then the question, of course, is, okay, well, if the definition of a currency manipulator is just a country that's buying and selling a lot of foreign exchange reserves, which just means foreign currencies that a country holds on hand, which lets it either buy or sell more of its own currency, either driving the price of that currency up or down. Does that mean that every country that buys a lot and sells a lot of foreign exchange reserves is also a currency manipulator? Because every country has foreign reserves. And basically, every country buys and sells those foreign reserves in conjunction with some, some sort of monetary policy in order to achieve goals, either certain rates of inflation or certain rates of unemployment, whatever the mandate of that country's central bank is. I mean, the US has foreign reserves. So a lot of this boils down to, I, I think, a question of degree. And then you can ask, okay, well, how much? And there was an independent study that the economists carried out, and I'm not sure which year this was, but since 2009, they claimed that both Taiwan and Switzerland were actually worse currency manipulators than China. And since 2014, both Germany and South Korea were also worse than China. And that's kind of an interesting observation because especially with Germany, you know, Germany is on the euro. It doesn't control its own monetary policy. It can't print more euros by itself unilaterally. It's something that would have to be done in conjunction with the European Central Bank. So you'd think that would make it hard for Germany to independently manipulate its currency, right? Right. But if you pay attention to, if you paid close attention to, say, Greece and Spain's crises, they were, I don't know if they were exactly burning German flags. Actually, interesting factoid, European Union safety regulations force manufacturers of flags to make them all fire retardant. So you can't run around burning new 
flags of the European Union because they won't burn. So we don't see a lot of German flags burning, but there was a lot of anger towards Germany among these Mediterranean countries, specifically because of the euro. And the idea was that Germany was sort of behind the euro and Germany benefits the most from the euro because before the euro, the German Deutschmark was expensive and the Draca and the Lira and these you know Mediterranean currencies were cheap. And that gave these Mediterranean countries an advantage in exports and allowed them to, you know, to export stuff to Germany. But since the entire Eurozone was rationalized down to the euro, that currency advantage dried up. And so what it meant was that a lot of industry actually picked up out of the Mediterranean and moved to Germany, much to the dismay and frustration and, you know, kind of outrage of these Mediterranean countries. So if you ask someone in Greece whether Germany manipulated the currency regime in Europe in, to its own advantage, they would say yes. Now, is it comparable to say that, you know, a massive multilateral treaty that results in a common currency zone that countries sign up to is akin to one country having the ability to print a lot of money and devalue its currency? I don't know. In a sense, both can result in an export advantage. So again, it all comes back to how you define what manipulation of currency is. Maybe there's different ways to do it, right? Which is why I think in this case, actually, definitions are really hard to lock down for what a currency manipulator is, because you can apply yeah. it to one country. And then if, if you try to apply the same metrics to other countries, all of a sudden it becomes you know difficult to make perfect comparisons. But given that China is often called a currency manipulator and is referred to as a country that you know just doesn't really practice fair trade policies because it manipulates its currency or limits U.S. imports and all that. The feeling among many is that the reason that China is exporting so much to the U.S. is not due to the natural economic comparative advantage that arises between countries just in a normal global free trade system. Yeah. And so if you believe that that's true generally, then there's arguments to be made for the United States trying to counter this unfair trade policy with sort of corrective measures. And one form of corrective measures here can be tariffs. So what's the idea behind a tariff generally? Well, what you do is you place a tax on the import of certain goods into your country, which means that for your citizens and for businesses in your country, it's more expensive to buy it from the country being tariffed. And therefore, it's comparatively cheaper to buy it if it's sourced in the United States. So generally speaking, tariffs are designed to discourage imports and encourage internal production of what's being made. And this is, if you've ever heard of the term import substitution, this is something that Japan and China uh, Taiwan, South Korea, a lot of the East Asian nations that have risen in the past, whose economies have risen in the past 50, 60 years, they used a lot of import substitution through tariffs to encourage the development of their own internal industries. In the case of the United States, the argument is often the case that, look, we're not trying to do import substitution here. We're not trying to pervert the market. We're trying to fix a perverted market. We're trying to 
create a more fair trade regime such that, you know, industries will naturally crop up in the United States. So tariffs by this argument would be about making up for unfair trade practices by China and allowing certain U.S. economic sectors to come back into preeminence that were lost due to the unfairness. And so this would be in the case of Trump doing this, part of his promise to help U.S. workers who, you know, who he sort of in the election tapped into the sense that they'd been screwed by global capitalism and global free trade. Right. And just as as a quick side comment here, there's often a refrain. um, I mean, you'll hear it if you like listen to a show with economists or whatnot that will just they will say, and it's it's econ macroeconomics 101. Everyone in their like college level intro course will hear it. It's just free trade is bad. It's always bad. It always creates these discrepancies and it always ends up hurting in the end. And in a modern world with global supply chains that are tightly integrated, where you know your phone, the, com- the components of your phone can come from 30 different countries, there's a pretty strong case to be made from that. But it's not always been that way in history, right? I mean, the rise of the modern European nation states in like the 17th century was largely based on economic systems of mercantilism, which was heavy trade protectionism in order to develop and industrialize industries back at home in the main country. So the the focus for, for Britain was developing industry at home and not necessarily in the Americas. That wasn't as important for them. And that restricted a lot of how trade passed through all of the different colonies that were controlled by some European country or another and which industries those colonies were allowed to participate in. And it was effective then. So it's just always good to be skeptical of universal claims saying that this is always the case. History changes. Sometimes one explanation or conclusion is very reasonable for a given moment in time. It just, things change. Back to China. So all of these things that we've talked about are economic in nature for the most part, right? Global comparative advantage, trade, imports, exports, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, there's also another element to tariffs or the idea of protectionism. And this is more political. And in the, in the case with China, you kind of have to think about American strategy, right? The tariffs in a way are meant to bring China to the negotiating table in order to get it to change a lot of its practices and to give America leverage at that table. And one way to do that is by making China hurt when its economy is particularly vulnerable. And if you listen to our last episode, you'll know how exactly it is vulnerable, which we won't cover here. So if you want to know, go back and listen to that one. Yeah. So given that China is already trying to make some major painful changes where it knows it's running a lot of risk, if you slap a bunch of tariffs on it, and hurt the economy, it increases the risk and the pain that China's in. And therefore, China is more likely to say, okay, well, with these tariffs, like we need to get rid of these tariffs. Like we're we're desperate, right? And therefore we're gonna go, you know, make a deal with Trump over, you know, whatever he wants to deal about in order to get rid of them. And if we recall, Trump actually had last year tried to get a new trade deal going with Xi Jinping. It didn't work. He left. And 
you know, you've heard this from us multiple times. It seems that Trump is returning to his sort of favorite negotiating tactic, which is make you hurt and put you in a position where time hurts, hurts you and helps Trump or helps the United States in this negotiation. And then you're going to come to the table as things get worse and worse for you. And there are a lot of things that Trump wants to negotiate with China, but one of them is those very trade practices. So we talked about tariffs as being a a restore a, a way to try to restore a more equal trade balance on their own. But if you're a believer in global free trade, there's actually an argument for tariffs within you know the administration there, and it is this: look, we don't want tariffs long term. We don't want to have a, you know, we believe in free trade. It's good. But what we want to do is hurt China enough with their own medicine that they come and they get, you know, they come to us and we make a deal where we get rid of the tariffs and they get rid of their own unfree, you know, unfree, unfair trade policies. And therefore, it could be the case that tariffs are actually the way of trying to restore a true free trade regime between the United States and China by forcing them to negotiate away some of the advantages that they've built into their own trade regime with the United States. But then there are also issues like, especially recently in the last year or so, North Korea, where it's pretty well known that China is, I don't know if you can call them an ally of North Korea, but they're they're probably one of the countries that is most close to North Korea and does trade with North Korea and all that. So the U.S. has clearly been trying to get North Korea to change its actions, to pull back on nuclearization and to basically do a bunch of things that are more amenable to American interests. And one way that the U.S. has been trying to get North Korea to do this is by getting China to get on board. You go and you have a meeting with Xi Jinping and you say, look, I really need you to do this for me. And if you do, then I'll cut you a deal on trade. And that's basically what Trump proposed last April when Xi Jinping came to Mar-a-Lago and visited him there. The idea being that with the trade advantage that the U.S. has over China, because the U.S. buys so much from China and China is still fairly dependent on selling a lot to the U.S. market, that by threatening to pull that back, the U.S. can force China to get North Korea to do what it wants. Now. The difficulty with that argument is that while China is North Korea's largest trading partner, North Korea is not a subject nation. It it does not belong to China. It is still independent, and its regime has its own interests and its own objectives. So China might therefore have influence with North Korea, but it doesn't control it. And therefore, the U.S. putting a bunch of limitations on China in order to try to get it to do something that it might not actually have the power to do could be a a really frustrating position to be in for China, right? It's like, come on, man, like, give me a break. I'm doing what I can, but this is out of my hands. Now, of course, lots of people will say, no, 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 it really is in China's hands. And they're just not willing to go along with the U.S.'s plan. So there's a couple of different ways to look at that. Yeah. And the thing about China and North Korea is that you know, yes, North Korea is fairly dependent on China for like trade and even economic support. And so you might be able to say, hey, China, you can just squeeze North Korea. You can cut off trade. You can cut off the economic support. So just do that. And, you know, there's two potential problems with that. One of them is that 
China isn't certain that doing so is going to change North Korea's behavior. But more importantly, you know, North Korea likes to negotiate with brinksmanship, right? And try to tries to like push you to the edge and get you to back down. And one of the things North Korea knows is that it is unacceptable to China for the North Korean regime to collapse because one, China does not want a U.S. ally on its border. And if South Korea takes over North Korea, that happens. And two, you know, if the regime collapses, there's going to be a massive refugee crisis. And it's unacceptable to China to have millions of starving, brainwashed North Koreans flooding over the border, you know, into refugee camps. And therefore, China doesn't really have the option of pushing North Korea to the brink of collapse. That's just not something that it can do. And therefore, asking it to do that in order to change North Korea's policy is something that, that you know, again, you, you can hurt China, but the potential hurt of the collapse of North Korea is so great that they're probably not going to choose to risk that in order to make the hurt go away. Yeah, exactly. Now, North Korea is one issue, but there is, well, there, there are several, but another that we're going to talk about, there's another strategic issue sort of built into the concept of this trade war, which is the idea that China, as it becomes more powerful, is becoming an expansionist power in the Pacific. And therefore, the U.S. has an interest in limiting or containing China within the first island chain, which, which is just a string of islands that kind of locks them into the East China and South China seas. So an ongoing fear among all of the allies that the U.S. has in the Pacific is that the U.S. security guarantee is not really worth what it has been in the last 70 years. And if Bush came to shove and China actually tested the security guarantee, the U.S. wouldn't really go to war with China over, say, Vietnam's claims in the South China Sea, like their water rights. This is not something that the U.S. would be willing to engage in a major war over. So in order to maintain the credibility of that security guarantee by you know preventing the situation arising from which it would ever actually be tested. One strategy that many think the U.S. is employing is by purposefully weakening China and by keeping them contained within the certain area of the Pacific. And that's a sort of geopolitical motivation that extends beyond the realm of economics. Yep. If you're thinking, wait, China expanding island chains, Vietnam, South China Sea, what's going on? Just go back to our show's Tiny Rock's Big Deal, part one and two. We will link them in the show notes. So those are like all of the potential reasons why the United States might be putting tariffs on China, all of the potential objectives that this pressure can help the United States achieve. One thing we haven't gone over yet is what are the tariffs? And so what's been hit so far as of very early September is $250 billion of Chinese imports have tariffs put on them, import taxes put on them of various percentages. And that's about half of all imports. So the United States imports about $500 billion worth of stuff from China every year. This $250 billion of Chinese imports is 1,300 different products. And the Tariffs that get you know put on those are up to twenty five percent of the total cost. So things can be up to twenty five percent more expensive than they used to be. The administration is also threatening 
hitting another 200 billion or more. I actually just saw a thing this morning that said it might be 230 billion of imports. And that would be pretty much everything. It would be like very nearly every single thing that gets imported from China would have a tariff on it if that actually went through. And again, this is another common tactic of Trump's negotiating strategy is create some hurt, make it painful, make it a case where, you know, waiting is bad for you and good for Trump, but then also have a carrot and a stick available. So to kind of force someone to come to the negotiating table sooner. So as long as you keep some stick in reserve, you can always threaten, hey, look, if you don't act soon, I'm going to use the stick again. But if you do act soon, you get the carrot. And so that those tariffs are particularly helpful if they're sort of hanging over the head of China. Note that the same thing is going on with Iran right now, for example. Sanctions have been imposed and there is another round of sanctions still coming with a closing window on it, which puts pressure on Rouhani to come to the table before things get even worse. If you want to hear more about the U.S. sanctions on Iran, we did an episode on that a couple of weeks ago. We'll also include that in the show notes. Now, these are the tariffs that the U.S. has imposed on China, but of course it's called a trade war, which means that there is some reciprocity here. And usually what happens when one country imposes a bunch of tariffs on another, the other one says, okay, we'll do the same thing to your exports to our country and just make them more expensive. So what has China done? Well, they've retaliated by putting tariffs on about $54 billion of American goods. And, and one of the most notable products is soybeans which is what one of the most exported products by the U.S. to China. And also for American soybean producers, China is by far the biggest trading partner other than U.S. consumption. So it's the, you know, China putting tariffs on soybeans really, really hurts soybean farmers in the United States. Right. And you wonder, OK, well, why why soybeans? Well, China has been very cautious about which products it targets for tariffs, purposefully to put pressure on President Trump's political base. So this could be politically difficult if a number of states who, say, going into the midterms, have congressmen running for re-election or senators, you know, all of a sudden, they could be looking to their constituency, which is saying, you know what? Supporting you know, Donald Trump's ideas are it's not really something we get behind anymore. They're hurting us. However, since the U.S. imports far more from China than China does from the U.S., there are limitations to how many products China can target in terms of value. And this has led to some speculation that China may actually be going back to manipulating its currency. Because if you can't tariff as many products because you don't purchase as many products, why not just make it easier to export all of your products generally with a weaker currency. Now, China may be resuming weakening its currency, but what that also means is that over the last couple of years, that's not really what China has been doing. So the, this narrative has kind of held over from a time when China was buying more and more and more US dollars to keep the currency weak, that China is purposefully weakening its currency for exports. But Recently, China has been very cautiously balancing selling some of its U.S. dollars in order to keep the yuan strong, and this is to minimize capital flight out of the country. So it kind of goes both ways, but 
And it's it's really hard to tell if that's exactly what China is doing right now because they sometimes weaken their currency a little bit here and there with these arcane and not very publicly disclosed mechanisms called like the anti-cyclical mechanism and in order theoretically to just keep things as stable as possible. But that's certainly one idea that's been proposed that's out there. Who So... Given that China does have limited options and note also that, you know, this China is looking for options in a time period when it is trying to sort of walk an economic tightrope. Right. So, for example, capital flight would be very dangerous for China right now, in particular when it's trying to deal with an oncoming debt crisis. It knows and sort of everyone knows that its options are limited. And so this political play, you know, against, for example, soybean farmers is particularly clever. And you might think that soybean farmers would go, ooh, boo, China, bad China. But if you remember from the the Iranian sanctions episode we did a few weeks ago, Iranians generally aren't going, boo, Trump. They're going, boo, Rouhani, right? Death to Palestine. Stop spending money overseas. Like, you know, Iranian government, it's your responsibility to make sure this is working and you're not. And so there is some chance that you could get a sort of farmer rebellion in some of these critical swing states that, you know, went to Trump by a bit of an edge in part on this promise that their lives were going to get better. And it turns out that tariffs take a long time to improve industries, right? Because, you know, even if things are more expensive, to import, it takes a long time to invest all the capital necessary to start producing that thing locally rather than importing it. And you also have to have the confidence that the, you know, the tariffs are going to stick around or that something permanent is going to change for you to want to invest all that capital. Because if the tariffs go away in six months, you've just wasted the capital because you're not going to be producing that here. So it takes a long time for the positive effects of tariffs to show up, but a very short time for the negative effects of the counter tariffs to show up, right? There's like a very complex and difficult political situation for both sides in this trade war, right? Both of them face a lot of immediate pressure and have some immediate pain in the hopes and and they're bearing it right now and trying to see who can stick it out the longest in the hopes that they're going to get some long-term win out of it. So then there's the issue of, you know, these, these, these tariffs are being referred to as Trump's tariffs, right? And normally, or at least maybe historically, tariffs were quite squarely in the hands of Congress and not the president. So the way that Donald Trump has been able to impose a lot of these tariffs without the approval of Congress is by invoking uh, national security clauses in a number of laws that have kind of gotten passed over the course of the last hundred years, which in classic, I I mean, yeah, that if that's one way to do it, if the path's open for you, (laughs) Congress already made it possible earlier. It's there, right? So Congress basically over the course of the last hundred years has passed different laws that let the president impose tariffs for national security purposes. So, Trump did this with the tariffs on aluminum with Canada, and it's just too much. Too much eye-rolling because Canada, it's pretty hard to make the case that Canada is a national security threat, but it turns out that the law as passed gives the prerogative to the president to determine what is and is not a national security threat. So 
Canada with your one blue water destroyer sitting <laughs> off the East Coast there. We're coming for you. We've got our eyes on you. Yeah. And now Congress is kind of trying to swing back the other way a little bit. Having, having had all this happen, they're kind of like, oh, maybe we've granted the executive a little bit too much power with this national security exemption. And in June, the Senate introduced a bill that would grant greater powers to the U.S. Congress to restrict tariffs or restrict the introduction of tariffs by the president under some of these prior laws that have been passed over the last hundred years. And we'll include some links in the show notes if you want to get into any of this with in greater detail. There's a Vox article that actually details what some of these laws are and sort of how some of these exemptions came to be law. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, and so this is actually, I think, a good example of where you're starting to get some budding of a transcendence of pure partisanship towards a rivalry instead between Congress and the executive. So, you know, if if you were a Republican, if you were a staunch Republican during the Obama years, you were really frustrated with executive orders being used uh, to kind of go, quote, go around Congress. And many people made the argument that executive orders were being used strictly legally, but not under the spirits of the laws that gave the executive that power. And now, you know, many Democrats are making the same argument about Trump, that his executive authority is being used, sure, technically legally, but not under the spirit of the law. And that both sides have felt this sting enough that there's starting, you know, there's there is still some cordiality within Congress. It's it's not gone entirely. And so there's this like kind of mumbling within Congress generally that, hey, maybe we just need to make the executive less powerful. Like we have we as Congress, not necessarily us, the people in the chairs, but people in the chairs before us have given the president too much power through these laws that we've passed. And we need to start curtailing it and bring it back into the hands of Congress in part so that the stakes aren't so high with each election. Like we're not supposed to have you know, kind of a, a dictator in charge. They're supposed to be a fairly limited role and that the will of the people is supposed to be more, you know, by, by the spirit of the constitution, the will of the people is supposed to be more represented by Congress than by a single human sitting at the top there. So we'll see what happens with that. But I, you know, it is a bit of an aside, but I find it interesting. So another interesting point about tariffs is that because they incur retaliation, 
it can often tend to backfire. And I mean, Eric, you already kind of talked about the timing disparity between when protectionist measures are supposed to help the domestic industry versus the often quicker effects of the retaliatory tariffs that can hurt those industries much quicker in the short term by eliminating their access to foreign markets. Well, and also there there is an immediate hurt for consumers and you know current industries, right? Because one of the things you talked about at the beginning was, let's say steel, for example, when it moved overseas, it got cheaper. And so now that there's a tariff on it, if, if it's going to at all, before the United States can start producing more of its own steel, steel is just more expensive now, right? It's harder to do things that need steel. It's more expensive to do things that need steel. So U.S. industries and consumers, even without the retaliatory tariffs, are facing higher prices due to these tariffs than they would. It's true. And speaking of steel, one industry in particular that's interesting that might get hurt in unexpected ways beyond the sort of standard consumers paying more and losing access to foreign markets is the oil industry. Why the oil industry? Well, as it turns out, pipeline steel is made of a special type of of alloy, of steel alloy, and only a very limited number of producers in the U.S. exist that can that can produce this alloy. And they're like not big conglomerations. They're smaller businesses. Right now, we're actually seeing a frenzy in U.S. pipeline construction because U.S. shale oil production has basically exceeded tra- the uh, transportation infrastructure that exists to move it from, you know, say the middle of the country to the coast where it can then be exported or sold. So... A lot of people are trying to lay two to two and a half million barrels a day worth of new pipeline infrastructure and have it up running sometime by next year so that they, their production capacity can can be actually moved around. But because there's such demand for the specific of alloy of steel, it's more than domestic producers can hope to keep up with. And as you guessed it, a lot of that special steel alloy comes from China. So tariffs on steel could actually end up hampering the increase in U.S. shale oil production to the economy and therefore actually limit the amount of additional oil that's being supplied to the global market. Why does this matter? Well, because as we talked about on our prior show, Iran is facing oil sanctions coming back online in November. And there are some estimates that this could curtail maybe between a million and two million barrels per day of oil supplied to the global market. But then there's also decline in oil production in Venezuela as a result of all the chaos going on there. So U.S. shale oil production was slated to provide a lot of the supply that was anticipated to be lost as a result of Iran and Venezuela. And you might say, yeah, but what about OPEC? Saudi Arabia can just turn up the spigot, right? And the answer is yes, kind of. Because while Saudi Arabia and countries outside of OPEC, like Russia and OPEC+, Plus. They, they do have spare capacity. They can produce more oil. That spare capacity is limited. So it's hard to actually know exactly what those levels are, but there's some estimates that Saudi Arabia maybe can produce an additional 2 million barrels per day of oil. Maybe Russia could do 500,000 barrels per day. So that's 2.5 million barrels per day of oil. And you know, if U.S. shale production is limited and if Iran and Venezuela get shut down, then all of a sudden you're facing numbers that a lot are a lot more closer than you thought. And a spike in oil prices could hurt the U.S. economy. Well, and also it can, you know, a spike in oil prices helps Russia on a geopolitical scale 
because Russia is being squeezed by sanctions, being squeezed by lower oil prices, limiting its ability to to one grow its economy in other ways, but also you know conduct foreign wars and all that stuff. And then if if the oil price goes back up, Russia has a much freer hand. I mean the the implications, the ripple effects of decisions like these throughout the global economy are and and the the political implications and ripple effects can be massive. And we're not saying all of this will come to pass, but it just goes to show that the unintended effects of actions such as this can be massive and they can occur in places that seem very far away. You know, that whole butterfly flaps its wings and causes a hurricane sort of deal can happen. And for the most part, just as with like all the other machinations of the global economy, for the most part, we as citizens will not be aware of the connection of the direct connection between something like these tariffs and a lot of what we see in the global economy. We're just going to see it happen and we'll probably see. So I guess I'm getting into a reconsider moment here where it's it's so common for us to see an effect in the global economy and we look to the immediately preceding factor or the immediately preceding effect and just point to that and say, aha, there we go. That's the problem. In the words of Dr. Ian Malcolm, <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's, that's chaos. That, that, that's, that's chaos. Yeah, exactly. And most of the time we don't know where the, like the origin, the kind of true cause of something happened. And I know we've talked about this with, for example, the, like the real estate bubble in the United States and the, the crash of 2008, 2009. You know, a lot of people say, what was the immediate thing that happened before this? Oh, banks, you know, chopped up bad mortgages and sold them off in weird, opaque ways. That must be the cause when, you know, the drivers of the overheated bubble, you know, came up in the 1990s, long before, you know, the banks started reacting to it. And this is going to be, you know, something like tariffs at this scale are going to have ripple effects potentially, you know, if they stick around for decades that, you know, where where these tariffs will sort of be the origin of what happens, but it will be really hard to for most people to be able to trace, uh, you know, trace the effects back to these tariffs. And therefore, you know, there's there's this sort of like sad systemic problem where we're going to blame whatever is the thing we saw that happened just beforehand. So hold on to your butts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> God, it's Jurassic Park was such a good movie. It's too bad they didn't make any sequels at all. <laughs> at least that's what I want to keep thinking. That's the reality that I want to live in. Exactly. I love Chris Pratt, but man, it's a good thing they didn't take it. Like, it's a good thing nobody thought, oh, you know, it'd be cool. Like Chris Pratt has a bunch of like pet velociraptors and they run around like saving the good dinosaurs from the bad dinosaurs. Because if anyone did that, that would be a bad movie. Oh, this is why I didn't even go and see it. Because how about we just move on to the reconsider moment before I, I descend yeah, okay, into fine. a pit of despair. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a Jurassic pit of despair. Yeah. So there's, there's basically two common narratives to this situation with the trade war. And since it reconsider, we examine those narratives. Here they are. One, China is taking our jobs. America and Americans must come first. Let's get those jobs back. And the second one is trade wars 
are universally bad. And by doing this, Trump doesn't understand basic economics. Yep. And that he's just, as usual, just knee jerk, you know, irrational, emotional thing. Someone disrespected him. He's going to blow up the world for his ego. Exactly. Now, as we can see from the discussion that we've had on this show, there is a method to the madness in the sense that the U.S. has political motives, international political motives that it's hoping, well, sorry, domestic and international political motives mm. that it is hoping to achieve with the trade war, even if all the rhetoric is couched in economic terms. So remember, we talked about pressuring China over North Korea and trying to weaken China enough to keep it contained in the first island chain and just kind of limiting its expansion in the Pacific generally. And thirdly, to force China to the bargaining table with the United States to, you know, it may be the case that the intent is for those tariffs to go away once China has made concessions about North Korea, about the South China Sea and about its own trade policy. Right. Uh, but in the short term and potentially the medium term, there are a lot of immediate economic consequences. It can hurt a lot of U.S. industries in the short term. It can hurt U.S. You know, pocketbooks. You know, our, our average consumer is going to pay more. And if the tariffs are going to stay, they can only feasibly provide value to the U.S. if the United States eventually pivots its economy to produce more of these things internally. So if they end up being the policy, if we don't negotiate them away, there's short-term pain for ostensible long-term benefit. And the problem is we don't know if the tariffs are going to stay. So there's an uncertainty problem, right? If you have access to a lot of capital and you're looking to take advantage of increased prices of imports, you might, for example, build that steel alloy in the United States if and only if you know that the tariffs are here to stay in the long term, but you don't, in part because Democrats are so against it that they may just, you know, even if Trump wants to keep them, it may just get overturned as soon as the Democrats are in power. So this level of uncertainty means it's very hard to act. What else, you know, and, and there are even other questions. What else is going to be tariffed by the United States? What is China going to put tariffs on? And then put this in the context of NAFTA being renegotiated and talks with Canada breaking down. Will the United States and China strike a deal that gets rid of the tariffs and then changes the U.S.-Chinese trade relationship? And so not knowing all this makes it really hard for U.S. To in investors to invest in the new plants and industries that would create the advantages discussed above of what is essentially domestic substitution. Right. Now, if the U.S. brings China to the negotiating table with all these tariffs in a way that the U.S. just has like a clear advantage, then that could be a net win for the U.S., potentially. Now, if China turns out can actually hold out for longer, perhaps by finding other places to buy soybeans, as an example, and not only substitute domestic industries for products that it was formerly importing from the U.S., but just import it from elsewhere. And actually, China is already starting to look around for substitutes. In exchange for agreeing to restructure some of Ethiopia's debt, for example, China agreed to start purchasing more soybeans from Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia's had a pretty bad case of drought over the last couple of years, so it's not sure if you know how much supply they'd actually be able to provide to China, but they're not sitting around waiting for something to happen. And if China is able to hold out for longer than the US, there could be major political consequences for Trump. You know, his base is suffering economically. 
and both from the tariffs and from the retaliatory tariffs from the Chinese. So it's a gamble. And it's not quite clear right now how this is all going to play out. Yeah. One thing I just realized is that given that the United States congressional elections are in a month, there may be a very strong incentive for China to hold out for at least that month in order to you know, remove as much of Trump's support from Congress as possible if they think that their retaliatory tariffs are going to hurt pro-Trump Republicans in the Midwest. So we may be pure speculation on my part, just came to mind, but something to note as this you know, very interesting, pivotal election in the United States comes up over the next month. It is not far away, guys. Uh, maybe we should do a show on the midterms. Yeah, actually, that's a good idea. Yeah. All right. Well, we're almost done with China. We've got one more show coming up with the inimitable, famous Chris Stewart of The History of China. And how do you know he's the authority? If you search The History of China, he's number one and probably you know through number 16. But he's got the big podcast on it. He has graciously offered to join us. We're going to be talking a little bit more about, you know, that long memory of China's that we discussed in the last few episodes and what that means for, you know, how how that affects its domestic and foreign policy today. So look forward to that. It's going to be a great time. Until then, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. I'm off to watch some football. Xander signing off. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.